Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. This week, we were joined by one of the pioneers of hepatobiliary surgery in the U.S., Dr. Henry Pitt. Dr. Pitt is the Chief of Oncologic Quality at Rutgers Cancer Institute in New Jersey, and we really delved deep with him on this episode on his initiatives to improve the quality of HPV surgery in the U.S., North America, and around the world. So, Dr. Pitt, uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining us on Cold Steel. It's a real honor to, to have you on. Um, you know, there's no question that that most of us across the country uh, know who you are and know your decades of work, and certainly within the U.S. Uh, and probably globally, hey, you're you're really an icon of uh, particularly HPV surgery. Uh, for those maybe that don't know you as well as we do, I just was wondering if you could tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your training pathway was like and, and how that sort of uh, took you to Hopkins and then beyond. Sure, and thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation today. Uh, so, um, both my wife Betty and I grew up in uh, North Jersey, about uh, 25 miles from Manhattan. Uh, we actually met as teenagers, uh, but didn't get married until halfway through medical school. Um, I went to college in upstate New York at Cornell, uh, actually played baseball, but uh, perhaps more importantly for your audience, uh, uh, we had a really good ice hockey team when I was there. Um, there was this goalie <laughs> by the name of Ken, Ken Dryden. Yeah, yeah. Who was fabulous. Uh, we won the NCAA championship. Uh, you know, he went on uh, to play in the Olympics uh, and uh, to, um, I think, uh, win, win the most valuable player in the Stanley Cup uh, shortly thereafter. So uh, that was great having him as the goalie. Uh, I then came closer to where our home was uh, for medical school, uh, also at Cornell, but now in New York City. Uh, and uh, for one reason or another, I got interested in the biliary system and in infections and worked with one of the infectious disease professors. And the fir- very first paper on my CV uh, is something uh, about genomycin levels in the biliary tract. That was a brand new antibiotic then. Uh, this was unknown. We had patients with T-tubes, and uh, we wrote a paper. So that was uh, where I got started uh, down that pathway. Um, I matched in surgery at Johns Hopkins, uh, so we went to, to Baltimore uh, for a couple of years. Uh, at that point in time, there were pyramids. Uh, so there were 18 of us as, as interns, and I think 16 wanted to go into general surgery, but there were only four slots. Uh, most of us had a military commitment. Uh, I had uh, a commitment to be in the Navy, uh, and although I wanted to wind up at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, I think nationally probably three or 400 other people did as well, uh, and we wound up being stationed in Buford, South Carolina, uh, for two years taking care of Marine recruits. Uh, it turned out that that was a great experience for our family. Uh, I had been smart enough to write a paper with my chairman, George Zeidema, on liver abscesses while I was away and uh, got a slot uh, back in Baltimore. Uh, Another part of uh, the training there uh, was actually an experience in Ireland. So we lived in Dublin for six months uh, as a fourth-year resident on a vascular service, which actually uh, was great training uh, for what I eventually wound up doing. Uh, And then when I finished my training, Um, We had sort of three options. Uh, uh, There was a private practice job, a very good job, uh, back in New Jersey where we had grown up. Um, I could have stayed on the faculty at Johns Hopkins. Uh, But we're talking about the 70s, and there really wasn't a lot of liver or pancreas surgery going on. Uh, But there was a fellow by the name of Bill Longmire who had trained at Hopkins and was uh, the prior chairman of UCLA and had been the president of the American Surgical and the American College of Surgeons and internationally known. 
And I felt that if I went there to UCLA, I would really learn even more. So uh, that's what we did. Uh, we were on the faculty there for uh, six years uh, and uh, had great opportunities uh, to uh, learn from him. We can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and then John Cameron became uh, the uh, chair at Hopkins. Uh, um, John had been a junior faculty when I had been a resident in the 70s. Uh, and he asked me to come back, uh, so we came back to Hopkins uh, in 85. Uh, at the time, uh, there were a couple of uh, super chief residents by the name of Keith Lomo and Charlie Yo, uh, both of whom uh, were kept on the faculty. Uh, Keith and I became very close in terms of uh, uh, mentor-mentee, and uh, Mike Zinner was also brought back to the faculty, and Charlie and Mike worked very closely for a couple of years. Uh, and uh, we had a great time uh, all together for the next 12 years uh, doing a number of uh, randomized trials. Uh, John, of course, was the senior of the four of us, uh, nine years older than me, and then I was nine years older than uh, Chief uh, Keith and Charlie. So it was sort of there was no question that John was the boss, uh, and I was sort of like the, the big brother, and Keith and Charlie were the younger brothers. Uh, uh, but we, we really worked very well together as a team. It was a fantastic time. Dr. Pitt, you're often credited, uh, rightly so, as one of the pioneers of American biliary surgery. Can you tell us about what it was like to be doing biliary surgery in really what was a newly developing field and what some of the sentinel jump forwards were in, in developing biliary surgery um, as its own discipline? Sure. Uh, you know, again, back when I was a medical student and a resident, uh, there was not a lot of uh, complex biliary surgery as we think of it now, uh, but there was uh, a lot of uh, gallbladder surgery and common bile duct surgery. Uh, so uh, we were very facile at doing uh, open common bile duct explorations, uh, uh, doing intraoperative colonoscopy, completion cholangiograms, uh, and that was really the state of the art uh, you know, back in uh, the 60s and 70s. Uh, and, and I think you know, the audience won't really understand this, but we had no ultrasounds, we had no CAT scans, we had no MRI scans. Uh, ERCP hadn't quite been in, invented in the early 70s, uh, so all of the stone disease uh, was surgical disease uh, back then. Um, as residents, we did see an occasional bile duct injury, an occasional uh, cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, those were the kinds of things that we now think of as complex biliary surgery. Uh, uh, and we all you know, wanted to scrub in those cases because they were few and far between. Uh, but that was part of the reason that um, I wanted to go work with Dr. Longmire because he was near the end of his career at that time and had some of the largest experience in the world with uh, repair of bile duct injuries, uh, uh, hyalocholangiac carcinomas, uh, liver surgery, cancer surgery. Uh, he and Bill Traverso had just described the pylorus preserving pancreatoduronectomy in 78, and I got to UCLA in 79. Uh, so... Uh, I really had the opportunity to look up uh, those series, a uh, series of cases of surgical sphincteroplasty, another operation that's rarely done anymore. Uh, and uh, Dr. Longmire asked me to write a chapter uh, uh, on uh, cholangitis, which got me even more interested in uh, the biliary infections. Uh, and he also was doing surgery on uh, patients with sclerosing cholangitis. Uh, and of course, remember, this is before liver transplant, uh, but there were uh, cases with primarily extrahepatic disease that we would do Y hepaticojejunostomies uh, on. <laughs> I remember distinctly telling John Cameron about that at a BDW meeting in 1980, and then he began doing them in Baltimore, and we did uh, a lot more subsequently. Uh, the other person who was key for me um, at UCLA was uh, Larry Denbeston, uh, another faculty person, and uh, was doing research in gallstone pathogenesis, and I started working with Larry, and uh, that got me to 
be even more knowledgeable about biliary physiology and uh, bile acids and all those sorts of things, which uh, played a role in my subsequent interest in, in biliary surgery. Uh, but to go back to your you know, original question, uh, I think that the imaging, uh, the evolution of interventional radiology, uh, the evolution of interventional endoscopy, and uh, forming multidisciplinary teams uh, to take care of patients with uh, complex biliary problems and hepatopancreal biliary problems, uh, I think, were the, the key jumps uh, back in the 80s and early 90s. I think it's important to to get the opinion of someone like yourself who's, who really has uh, seen the breadth of the way that HPB surgery has developed over the last um, few decades. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about the way and the exposure that residents get uh, to biliary surgery now, especially as it becomes a much more subspecialized um, field. I'm particularly thinking uh, of, you know, uh, open open common bile duct explorations or even open cholecystectomies. I think the majority of residents will have seen a few of those or done a few of those on their HPV rotations, but really not had much experience outside of that. How do you see that uh, tension going forward? And uh, do you think that uh, is, is something that we need to address? Or, or how do you see us uh, going forward with that? Well, I think that's a very good question, and uh, I would say, you know, when we're laparoscopic cholecystectomies, uh, the equation uh, changed in terms of bile duct injuries. Uh, it's fortunately gotten a little bit better now, uh, but uh, as uh, surgery has become more and more specialized and uh, the endoscopists uh, do a lot of this work, uh, um, you're right that, that the surgical residents do not get the kind of experience that we got uh, doing uh, cholecystectomies open. Uh, having said that, though, I, I think that uh, the current generation of attendings and residents have gotten uh, tremendously good at uh, doing procedures minimally invasively. Uh, the few centers where uh, there still are a lot of open ripples, I think, are a great training place for doing difficult cholecystectomies because, uh, as you well know, uh, some of those patients having had stents in, they get cholecystitis and get empyemes of the gallbladder, and, and taking those gallbladders out uh, is always a challenge. But that does not um, really apply to the vast majority of the trainees, only the trainees that are at specialized places. And... And, of course, the way the whole world has evolved now, the vast majority of trainees are going on to um, do fellowships. Uh, and, um, you know, that's really where I think that expertise um, comes in now. Uh, and it's very difficult for us to properly train uh, uh, the surgical residents. Uh, I do think uh, that we were too quick to give up um, um, common bile duct exploration, and I do think that that's something going forward uh, for uh, those of us, uh, you know, who are experts in the field, uh, that we really need to teach the next generation how to do a minimally invasive bile duct exploration with all the bells and whistles of polydocoscopy and completion cholangiography and all those things that we learned decades ago uh, to prevent uh, retained common duct stones. Uh, but there's been a gradual movement in that direction, but probably we need to do more. Dr. Pitt, if you're, if you're sort of a version, I don't know, what 1.5 to use software talk of, of uh, an American biliary surgeon, you're certainly a 1.0 version in terms of uh, being a very early leader in promoting quality in American surgery. Can you define for our audience the, the concepts uh, at their core of things like what quality is and what quality improvement is? Sure, uh, and, and, you know, go back to the, I, I have been around a while, and to go back to early leader part of it, uh, um, we were doing quality before we called it quality, and we were doing quality improvement uh, before it became, a, you know, a specialty now, and, you know, in our current parlance, uh, we talk about 
value and value being quality over cost. Uh, but uh, part of what we were doing at Hopkins back in the 90s, uh, I think, uh, came at that equation uh, the opposite way. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, that in the state of Maryland uh, uh, was the only state to go not to go on the diagnostic-related group, or DRG, payment system. Uh, and uh, But they had a system, a, a cost commission, uh, where they would keep all the hospitals viable. They wouldn't let them lose money, but they also would not let them make a lot of money so that the margins were thin. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, 30 years ago, we really needed to begin reducing length of stay uh, and uh, reducing variation among groups, uh, all those concepts uh, that are well-known now. Uh, and um, again, working with Dr. Cameron and Dr. Yell and Dr. Lillenbaum, uh, we, uh, and, and we had a, a hospital administrator uh, by the name of Toby Gordon, uh, who um, had a doctoral degree uh, from uh, the School of Public Health in Hopkins. And, um, you know, we think it's it very uh, easy now to look at big databases. But at the time, she was facile at looking at the Maryland State Database and um, some of those original papers uh, uh, in the pancreas uh, with respect to volume outcome uh, was part of um, her uh, helping us. Uh, and then we did similar papers with Mike Chody uh, uh, around volume outcome and liver, and we did another one um, uh, with uh, Julie Sosa um, uh, around uh, complex biliary surgery using the state database. So those were some of the early things that we did uh, that were um, you know, steps in the direction of where we are now. But, but also something that we did uh, as a group with Toby was to create care pathways. Uh, and by the mid-90s, uh, we had uh, 50 procedures on care pathways throughout Johns Hopkins. Uh, and uh, it, it was essentially the forerunner of ERAS. Uh, and all the best practices that have gone into ERAS, we were working on before anybody thought of that uh, concept. Uh, so I think some of those, um, you know, basic uh, uh, principles that we learned, we, we had good data, we looked at the data, um, you know, uh, the four of us as, as HPV surgeons um, all had uh, a background in athletics. Uh, I think surgeons in general tend to be competitive. Surgeons in general want the outcomes for the patients to be the best they possibly could. So we used to slice and dice all the Whipple data, all of the complex biliary data by the four of us, and we'd feed it back to each of us. Uh, and, you know, in theory, it was blinded, but there were only four of us, and we knew who was who, uh, and everybody wanted to have the shortest length of stay and have the fewest complications. Uh, and through reducing costs, it turned out that the way you were going to accomplish that was to not have any complications. So that's why, why I say, you know, we started reducing costs and in the practice of reducing costs and having pathways and doing ERAS type of best practices, we wound up creating excellent quality. It's such a fascinating view as to how all of this began, Dr. Pitt. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of ACS NISQIP as well? And, and maybe for the few listeners who don't know what that is, maybe just uh, tell us what that is and, and how has that really changed American and truly global surgery? Sure. So, I mean, the story is actually very interesting. Uh, and it's been ACS is American College of Surgeons and NISQIP is National Surgical Quality Improvement Program. Uh, actually, NISQIP... Uh, started in the VA hospitals in America. And, you know, as um, so often is the case now, something gets into the news or um, the politicians hear about it, and it turns out that there was uh, uh, something in one of the Chicago newspapers about some bad outcomes at one of the Chicago VA hospitals, uh, and that got all the way to our U.S. Congress, uh, and in their ultimate wisdom passed a law 
saying that the VA hospitals needed to have risk-adjusted data. Well, there was nothing of its kind uh, back then. I mean, we were just beginning to get computers and things like that, uh, uh, you know, second generation. So, uh, fortunately, uh, there was a man by the name of Sukri Khuri, um, who was a, a cardiac surgeon at the Boston VA, uh, who grew up uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, his uh, father, uh, and actually I think he was born in Beirut, uh, and uh, his father was a mathematician uh, on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Uh, so, so he was, you know, clearly had the math genes uh, and um, was able to create uh, this surgical quality program uh, within the VA system. By the end of the 90s, all 132 VA hospitals were doing this work. Uh, I was a surgical chair in Wisconsin starting in 97, uh, and that's when I first started seeing uh, the NISQIP uh, uh, quality data uh, from uh, from our VA hospital in Milwaukee. Uh, and we had data on all of the specialties, and it was highly risk-adjusted, uh, and it was very believable data, and you could uh, discuss the data with the surgeons, uh, and they knew where they were uh, in terms of their peers, and, and again, everybody wanted to do better. So uh, that led to a handful of the VA hospitals that were also associated uh, with university hospitals saying, well, gee, if we can, and, and many of the faculty were back and forth between the university and the VA hospital, uh, if we could do this in the VA, certainly we could uh, do this at our academic medical centers. So uh, they actually got a grant uh, uh, from uh, our AHRQ, uh, and uh, uh, some of the places where uh, these uh, uh, pilot studies were done were Michigan and University of Virginia and Emory and Utah. Uh, and all in all, I think there were 14 AMCs and uh, four affiliated community hospitals and early systems back then. So 18 hospitals uh, that were not VA uh, starting doing this work, and it was obvious that it was very doable. Uh, Scott Jones, um, another great uh, HPV surgeon, trained at Duke and had been the chair at, at Virginia, uh, was in the middle of all of that pilot project, and then he became the president of the American College of Surgeons and really influenced the powers that be that this is something uh, that uh, should not just be uh, in the VA hospitals but also should be in the so-called private sector uh, and he really got the American College to put all the weight of uh, their um, finances and expertise uh, behind the program uh, to get uh, get this group started in the American College of Surgeons, 2004 or 2005 uh, was when that began. Uh, Cliff Coe uh, became uh, the leader uh, of that uh, group, and, and Bruce Hall. Uh, shortly thereafter was his right-hand person. And within a couple of years, uh, they were able to publish, uh, uh, actually present at the American Surgical Association and present uh, a paper that showed that uh, mortality improved uh, in 82% um, of the hospitals and morbidity improved in two-thirds of the hospitals within the first three years of uh, participating in this group. So, uh, that's really when the ball got rolling. Uh, shortly thereafter, there was a paper out of Penn State uh, where they were able to demonstrate uh, a return on investment uh, for NISQIP in year two uh, because uh, it's clear that all of these complications, whether it be superficial surgical site infections, which might cost $10,000, or organ space infections, which might cost uh, twenty dollars or $25,000, uh, if you reduce a few of them uh, over a year, uh, you can wind up uh, paying for uh, the extra costs of, of the nurse uh, to gather and enter the data. And, and I think that's a key part of the equation is that uh, these are clinicians, nurses that gather the data and they communicate with the surgeons to make sure uh, that the data are accurate going in. Uh, and 
all of the variables have very well-defined uh, definitions, uh, and uh, that's why surgeons, I think, tend to uh, believe um, the NISQIP data. It's interesting, Dr. Pitt, to listen to you talk about the origins of NISQIP because it makes me reflect um, uh, upon Calgary specifically, and, and you, of course, know this, but you know, before I started training here, uh, Peter Cruz was our chairman, and and he had hired uh, a small handful of, of surgical uh, OR nurses to check every wound of every surgeon in the department every single day, and each surgeon received a report on a monthly basis um, comparing their wound infection rates or their superficial S, you know, SSI rate to their colleagues. And you know, by all accounts, and talking to um, really all those surgeons at that time, uh, even on a local level, that had a profound impact in terms of quality improvement and, and sort of bringing the herd together. So it's clear that there's there's no doubt NISQIP is incredibly powerful to do that. Um, one of the I'm things sure that Shukri Corey <laughs> knew... Uh, about what was going on at Foothills, uh, and you know nothing in this world is new. Uh, but that those principles uh, that were developed there uh, are the same principles that that uh, we have in this group today. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite neat. What well, one of the new ways that you've taken the NISQIP, uh platform, of course, is disease or subspecialty specific um, markers and outcomes. And, you know, obviously uh, being biased, HPV NISQIP is, is our premier example of that. Could you talk about the history of that and the direction of that and how that's really empowered, um, in particular, for example, HPV surgeons going forward? Sure. So, I mean, this goes back uh, a little bit to the origins of the uh, now America's Hepatopancreatobiliary Association. Uh, we, we got that all started in 1994, uh, and uh, it was really a decade later that NISQIP uh, uh, got started uh, through the American College of Surgeons. Uh, but um, a number of the people who uh, were early leaders within the AHPBA um, were uh, very aware uh, and in, uh, involved in the NISQIP work. So, for example... Uh, Mike Henderson uh, had been at Emory before he went to the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, he was our first president. Uh, Sean Mulvihill uh, had been at Utah, uh, where, uh, again, some of the pilot work uh, was was done uh, through uh, NISQIP. Uh, and Steve Strasberg, uh, you know, always in, was in the middle of all of these things about uh, trying to make sure that um, outcomes were as good as they possibly could be. You know, obviously, his work uh, with the critical view is one one example of that. So, um, we, uh, you know, former past president to the AHPBA, uh, actually uh, dug into the HPV data uh, uh, for the first four years. I think two thousand five, six, seven, and eight, uh, and then uh, wrote a little position paper, which was published in HPB, I think, in two thousand nine, uh, saying that you know, this platform uh, could create something called um, HPV NISQIP. Uh, I think that was in the title. Uh, and uh, I started trying to influence Cliff Cowell and uh, Bruce Hall about this at the time. And um, one of the uh, messages that we got was, well, you need procedure-specific variables. So uh, we had a research committee back then uh, and uh, Steve Strasberg and I uh, worked with uh, people who were now very well-known but were earlier in their careers then, uh, Tim Pollack, uh, Tom Aloya, Elijah Dixon from Calgary, uh, Nick Sironsky, uh, and we had uh, a series of conference calls uh, and came up uh, with 24 uh, pancreas-specific variables uh, and 30 uh, hepatectomy-specific variables. Now, it was very interesting because there was a committee at the time uh, that said, well, you can only have three or four or five variables, uh, and uh, there was a turnover in the leadership of the committee, uh, and somehow we snuck in and we got approval uh, to develop all of those uh, variables, which the vast majority of which are still um, in play today. Uh, and... Uh, and then we pushed a little bit harder and said, well, okay, we've got these variables. Uh, we'd like to implement this. And uh, 
Cliff Coe and, and Bruce Hall said, well, you have to demonstrate uh, that our surgical clinical reviewers uh, can actually uh, uh, gather these data. Uh, so, but we were given a permission uh, to do a demonstration project, uh, and uh, that started in November of uh, 2011. Uh, at 37 hospitals, again, this is where we were using uh, our personal connections and, and AHPBA network uh, to get people on board. Uh, and by the time we finished, we had 43 hospitals uh, where we collected uh, the procedure-specific data uh, through uh, the two months of 2011 and the, and the 12 months of 2012. Uh, and clearly, we were able to do that. Uh, Taylor Real played a key role in uh, analyzing some of the early data, as did Bruce Hall. Uh, Molly Kilbane, our surgical clinical reviewer at Indiana, uh, was key in, in this whole process. Uh, and then we started publishing papers uh, from the data. Uh, and uh, it became clear in 2013 and 2014 that, that we were on to something. Uh, so... Um, the leaders of the American College of Surgeons allowed us uh, to uh, have um, hospitals voluntarily uh, gather um, pancreas data in 2013 and pancreas and liver data in 2014. The the SCRs and the hospitals could volunteer, and it turned out that we had you know 75, 85 hospitals volunteering, uh, and. Uh, and then eventually I said, well, we need to create a collaborative. Uh, and we were allowed to create the uh, collaborative uh, in 2015. So that's been up and running for five years now. Uh, it turns out uh, that uh, currently uh, we have uh, 172 hospitals around the world uh, gathering uh, hepatectomy and pancreatectomy uh, specific uh, data. Uh, not all of those hospitals are in the collaborative, but the collaborative hospitals collect about 85% uh, of those data, and then they get reports back, uh, not only, um, you know, of their usual NISQIP data, but also of their hepatectomy and pancreatectomy uh, patients, whether it be uh, major or partial hepatectomies, and uh, also ripples and distals, and uh, the data are all risk-adjusted, and, uh, you know, we've got the usual kind of things like superficial and organ space infections and VTE, uh, but we also have pancreatic fistulas and delayed gastric emptying and bile leaks and interventional biliary procedures and uh, post-hepatectomy liver failure. So uh, it's, begun, it's become uh, a great platform uh, to, uh, again, Feedback, risk-adjusted data, people see if they're uh, a high outlier, they want to do better. And uh, actually, Joel Bean, who um, uh, trained uh, at Indiana and then at Pittsburgh and now is a junior faculty person at UCLA, and I uh, just uh, have a paper in print and annals that have shown that uh, the optimal outcomes of patients with pancreatectomy have actually improved uh, over a four-year period uh, from 2014 to 2017. So, so we're doing something right. Yeah, there's no question it's working. It's it, it's so interesting to 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 pay attention to listen to how and watch how, how you leveraged um, you know the HPV collaborative on top of the NISQIP platform. It was remarkable. Well, one of the problems we run into in Canada sometimes with bringing some of these new technologies or concepts or platforms in is that our, our budgets are siloed even within a single uh, healthcare system. So, for example, a nursing manager will run the budget for an operating room, which will be different from someone else who will run the ward, which will be different from the emergency department. So obtaining those cost savings at the patient level from start to finish becomes becomes quite difficult. There's no question, though, that another really impressive leveraged benefit that that you've now moved into along with Mike D'Angelica and some others, it's using that NISQIP platform to actually perform very large randomized controlled prospective trials. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, and let me uh, also comment that, you know, it sounds like a very nice story now, uh, 15 years later, but there were lots of obstacles along the way. 
Uh, and, you know, life is not forward or simple. Uh, yeah. but this was one of the, uh, you know, examples of persistence. Uh, I think that, you know, Cliff and, and Bruce were always, uh, you know, I kept on badgering, oh, well, we could do this, we could do that. Uh, you know, and, and I think they got tired of hearing me and eventually they let me do things. So that, that lesson, I think, of just being persistent, uh, is, is important. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, about clinical trials, uh, actually, if you go back to the origins of the AHPBA, that was one of our goals. Now, it's always been difficult to do that, uh, uh because of all the infrastructure that, uh, is required uh, for many of these clinical trials. Uh, but it, it was one of uh, the visions that we had that we had this platform now, uh, with so many hospitals participating in this platform of NISWIP, uh, is actually uh, fantastic uh, because if you uh, think of uh, all of the uh, uh, salaries that are being paid by each of the hospitals for the surgical clinical reviewers and the $20,000, a year to participate in this, which, again, there's a return on investment for, this platform's worth uh, over $20 million a year that the hospitals are already investing in, and the surgeons believe the data. So um, I, I go back to the AHPBA again, and I go back uh, to uh, a time when Elijah Dixon was the president, uh, and um, he actually created the Clinical Trials Committee, which hadn't existed before, uh, and appointed uh, Mike Angelica and Adam Yacht uh, uh, as the chair and co-chair uh, of the committee. So uh, by this time, we knew uh, that the, I mean, obviously the Achilles heel of, of the nipple procedure uh, is uh, the pancreatic fistula, uh, but also the cervical site infection rates were way too high. And if you add up the superficial, the deep, and the organ space infections, uh, it's 20, 21%, uh, and it hasn't changed. So we felt that uh, if we could do a clinical trial uh, trying to reduce uh, the cervical site infection rates on uh, the NISPA platform, uh, that that would be something that we could do uh, without huge amounts of uh, extra uh, cost and really the ability of the institutions to volunteer uh, to uh, participate. Now, uh, there's a program in the American College of Surgeons called uh, the Clinical Scholars Program, uh, and um, part of this whole equation was that uh, Cook and Bruce Hall uh, uh, really lent us the time of a couple of the clinical scholars over the last couple of years uh, to help write the protocols and onboard uh, the institutions. Uh, and uh, the two people that have been involved there are uh, Jason Liu, uh, who's now uh, back being a surgical resident at the University of Chicago, uh, and Ryan Ellis, who's about to go back to be uh, a surgical resident at Northwestern. So, uh, with Mike and Adam and, and Jason and Ryan uh, and uh, support from Cliff and Bruce uh, and I, uh, we have gotten, and, and again, you know, with Elijah uh, creating this committee, uh, we have gotten this clinical trial up and running. Uh, it took a while uh, to get started, uh, and they really got all the kinks worked out at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where, where Mike D'Angelica is, uh, and uh, and then after about a year of doing that, we onboarded more and more hospitals. And currently, uh, we have 26 hospitals uh, across North America. And I should make that point because there are a dozen Mesquite hospitals in Canada. Uh, and uh, clearly, when I talk about Mesquite data now, I talk about North American data, not U.S. data. Uh, and this clinical trial is a North American trial. Uh, of two different antibiotics in patients uh, uh, having Whipple procedures. Uh, before COVID-19, uh, we were uh, about two-thirds of the way there in accruing nearly 900 patients, uh, and I believe that we'll be up and running uh, again here shortly, and hopefully by the end of this calendar year, we'll have that trial completed. Dr. Pitt, clearly underlying all of this work that you've done uh, with NISQIP uh, 
and and all the quality work that you've done is really the collaboration that you've built with the HBB community. And I think some of our listeners may not know that you were one of the founders of the AHPBA as well as the IHPBA. How did you um, develop that organization, and what was the impetus uh, to develop a, a, you know a, a, an organization for a specialty, as you say, that was uh, in in its uh, nascent? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, again, we started the AHPBA in 1994, uh, but this part of the story actually goes back to the late 70s and goes back to UCLA. Uh, and um, there was a group that got together uh, in 78 uh, that created something called the International Biliary Association, or IBA. Uh, and Ron Tompkins, another one of the faculty at UCLA, uh, was the first president. Uh, George Bercy, who's known perhaps more for his work in minimally invasive surgery uh, and in the origins of sages, was one of the key people at the beginning as well. Uh, and the IBA started in 79 uh, and then uh, actually was challenged uh, in 86 by Stig Benmark from Sweden, uh, who thought that it was too exclusive and not as far outreaching to the developing world, and he uh, created his own group called the World Association of Hepatopancreobiliary Surgery, and then the IBA became the IHBPA, uh, and then it was uh, silly in the late uh, 80s and early 90s to have two groups like this. I, I wound up being the, the program chair of both groups, uh, and then when we had the first international Hepatopancreobiliary Association meeting, uh, in 94, I was the program chair for that. So I was in the middle of all that. Uh, the Asians had actually created in 91 uh, an Asian uh, Society of Hepatobiliary Pancreatic Surgery. Uh, and then we felt as though we should have an American one, which was eventually become the Americas. Uh, and then a fellow by the name of Basil Kikas from Greece uh, felt as though there should be a European chapter uh, of the IHPBA. So all of those things happened starting in the late 70s, evolved in the 80s, and then really matured uh, in the 90s. Uh, and I should add, again, that it's really Mike Henderson and uh, Bill Myers and I who, who really came at it from slightly different angles. And uh, Bill and I tended to clash a little, and, and Mike was great at moderating the two of us, and as uh, the three of us uh, uh, created uh, a group that uh, had some uh, intellectual intelligence. We were missing a woman at the time, uh, but fortunately in the AHPBA, we have the HPB heroines now. Well, and let me add that, that we've, we're just about finished writing all this history up, uh, and there uh, is a book that should be ready for prime time in about two months uh, called uh, AHPBA, The First 25 Years, and so all of these stories written by all of the people involved will be in there, and I, I'm hoping that people who are interested in HPB will uh, get the book and, and take a look at it. Uh, oh, I, I, I can't wait to, to get my hands on a copy. What do you think, Dr. Pitt, is the frontier and the future of quality? I mean, we, we've seen now the development of really big databases uh, like ACS NISQIP, but you know, there have been certainly some challenges with looking at um, quality from a, a big administrative database. So, you know, whether it's the, the database type approach to quality or, or other challenges, where do you see quality improvement in surgery going uh, over the next 20 years? Yeah, so I, I think that we're all kind of aware that we're on the verge of artificial intelligence taking off. Um uh, and, and robotics really taking off, and those two things probably getting married. Uh, uh, and, you know, now we, we think of uh, the, um, the genome uh, as, you know, well, it's an, an old thing, and we're talking about uh, personalized medicine and uh, how we can treat all of our cancer patients dif differently. And those things are pretty obvious right now, uh, and I think will make the world very different in 15, 20 years. Uh, but the, you know, going back to my roots of being interested in biliary infections and cholangitis and cholecystitis and, 
Uh, I think um, that we're another area that we're aware of, but really haven't uh, gotten as far with yet, is the microbiome. Uh, and that's another example of big data. Uh, I just reviewed a paper for um, a, a high-class journal uh, uh, last week um, that uh, used state-of-the-art uh, microbiome data. This paper came from China, uh, and it looked at 45 people undergoing Whipple procedures, and uh, they did complete fecal microbiome where they extracted all the DNA and they ran all the RNAs and uh, measured, um, you know, uh, the operational taxonomic units, OTU. That's probably something most of us have never heard of before and looked at diversity and richness of the families and the genuses of the, you know, the 10 to the 10th uh, bacteria that are in the stool. Uh, and they showed uh, that the microbiome changes uh, from before to after Whipple. Uh, and they also were giving somatostatin to half the patients in a trial. And, you know, surprise, somatostatin dramatically affects gut uh, motility and, and physiology. Well, somatostatin changed the microbiome. Uh, and they also looked at the microbiome of people who did and did not develop a pancreatic fistula. And surprise, they were different. So, uh, I mean, I think there's a, that's just an example of something new in terms of big data uh, that, um, you know, we, we will know, you know, not only uh, which uh, uh, chemotherapy to give to which patient, but we will know which antibiotic cocktail to give to which patient uh, that will dramatically reduce uh, their uh, surgical site infections and pancreatic fistulas. Uh, I mean, that's uh, exciting to me. Uh, and I think this, this study that we're doing right now, you know, comparing Piptazo to Cefoxidin will uh, seem so unsophisticated 20 years from now, but you've got to start somewhere. Dr. Pitt, your, uh, your first sentence uh, on the podcast today appropriately um, mentioned your amazing, truly amazing wife, Betty. Um, so I think it's it's uh, it's a perfect uh, way to close in mentioning her again and asking you specifically, um, and, and for the listeners maybe that don't know, uh, you have a, a, an oration called the Betty and Henry Pitt Quality uh, Oration every year at our annual HPBA meeting, and it's really one of the highlights of that meeting, of course. So I'm curious what that what that has meant to you and to Betty. Um, you know, the speaking list has been absolutely unbelievable. It's been extraordinary. We know that you handpicked those speakers. I'm curious what your biggest take-home messages would be for our listeners, um, given the many years that that's now run. Sure. Well, before we go there, uh, I mean, I have to totally give credit to Betty. Uh, we've, we're about to be married uh, 51 years now, uh, so it's wow. just a, a testament to her ability to put up with me this long. Uh, she's fabulous. I call her my Renaissance woman. I know a little bit of sports and a little bit of science and she knows the rest. Uh, and she's, she's a great people person and a great compliment to me. Uh, so, so she deserves all the credit. Uh, but to back up a little bit, you know, I think the AHPBA, uh, was very good a few years back. Uh, we started a foundation and we realized that we needed to honor uh, a few key people. And, and the first person uh, that we decided to honor was Bernie Langer. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bernie, obviously everybody in Canada knows who he is and what he did in terms of training in Toronto. Uh, and his legacy with respect to HPV surgeons is, is fabulous. So now there's an annual fellows conference uh, at uh, the AHPBA meeting named after Bernie, and, and Bernie received one of the uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards a couple of years ago. Similarly, uh, the group at Memorial uh, decided that they really wanted to honor Les Blumgart, uh, and uh, they created a historical lecture, which again has been another highlight of, of the meeting, and, and Les uh, you know, has his textbook and tremendous trainees at Memorial, and um, um, also was honored with, with uh, receiving uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. So, so that was part of the background. Uh, and, you know, when you get older like me, uh, you start thinking about what your legacy might be. Uh, and 
having gotten very interested in infections and in quality all these years, um, Betty and I thought that one of the ways to um, have a legacy uh, was uh, to create this lecture. Um, and uh, it's actually called uh, a quality oration. Uh, and uh, there had been precedent within the Society for the Surgery of the Elementary Tech to name things after um, you know, people like Andy Warshaw and Joe Fisher and John Cameron and, and John, and it also is the Doris and John Cameron, uh, uh, oration. So, so we, we, um, plagiarized a little bit from that name and called ours an oration, uh, as well. And one of the things that, uh, I've tried to, uh, do, um, you know, through Nisquip and through this oration is to, uh, include people who are leaders of the American College of Surgeons. So uh, our first speaker was Dave Hoyt, uh, the uh, director, Carlos P- Pellegrini, um, uh, Barbara Bass, uh, former uh, presidents, uh, have been speakers. Uh, Cliff Coe, uh, who uh, runs Nisquip, has been a speaker. John Berkmeyer has been a speaker. And then this year, uh, Pierre Clavian. So uh, you're right. Uh, we have had, you know, fabulous leaders in the quality world uh, and and a huge connection with NISQIP and the American College uh, uh, as our speakers so so far. Uh, I would say that, um, you know, one of the, the biggest take-home messages is that we're not there yet. You know, when I was a resident in the 70s, uh, um, we didn't do very many Whipples or very many hepatectomies, in part because the mortality was so high. One in four people died from a Whipple in the 70s. You know, we're now down to one and a half percent in order of magnitude. That's fabulous. Uh, but we still, you know, have 40 to 50 percent of our people having a Whipple uh, having having a complication and 20% surgical site infections and, you know, 11, 12% pancreatic fistulas uh, uh, and bile leaks. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've got a long ways to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the next generation out there, uh, there's always more to do. Uh, and uh, we'll look back on what we're doing now and say how unsophisticated it was, but always keep on looking forward and saying, there are more challenges out there. I mean, the current goal for me is to reduce the morbidity in hepatectomy and pancreatectomy in the world. Uh, and one of the projects that I'm working on now is with Mark Betzelink and others uh, in North uh, Northern Europe uh, to uh, standardize all the variables so that the registries have comparable data and comparing across the Atlantic for the moment and next step across the Pacific. So uh, we'll get there, and we're not that far away. We just need to keep on plugging. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.